This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, I'm Lori Anding, and I'm a member of the Carbon Almanac Network. This episode about aviation was very enlightening to me since they had different perspectives and points of view. It supports the premise of the Almanac in that we need to create discussion around these difficult issues. The fact that greater than 80% of the population has never been on an airplane emphasizes that flying is a privilege And with that privilege comes responsibility. Hello, this is Natalie Muller from DW's On the Green Fence. Over the summer, we'll be bringing you some of our favourite episodes and special interviews. With everyone keen to go on holiday, demand for air travel is soaring and airlines are struggling to keep up. At many airports, there are staff shortages, strikes, thousands of flights cancelled and huge queues of passengers. So we thought it'd be a good time to revisit one of our most popular episodes from last year from our series about travel and tourism. Flying is bad for the environment. And in this episode, we look at how the aviation sector is approaching the mammoth task of tackling its carbon footprint and ask whether we, as consumers, should stop flying altogether. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to On the Green Fence. I'm Neil King. And in this episode, we'll be continuing our tourism and travel series. This time, it's all about aviation. Flying is one of the most carbon-intensive ways to get around. Around 2-3% to of global CO2 emissions come from aviation. Now, that may not sound a lot, but if aviation were a country, it would be the sixth largest source of CO2 in the world. The aviation industry plans to cut its emissions by 100%, going carbon neutral by 2050. But the technology for carbon-free flying doesn't really exist yet. So making this green future a reality is going to require a huge transformation. But where to start and what options are on the table that would enable us to carry on flying? Or maybe we need to question flying as such and prevent this sector from growing. Demand for air travel has been steadily increasing since the early 2000s and is expected to double within the next two decades. In 2005, there were 2.1 billion airline passengers. In 2019, there were 4.5 billion. So meeting emissions targets as air traffic grows is already a tall order. Let's take a closer look at what exactly airlines are planning to do to meet emissions targets. 
How are they going to get there? I first took that question to a carrier that calls itself Europe's greenest airline, Ryanair. It's a low-cost airline, operating short-haul flights, mainly here in Europe. It has a goal of emitting no more than 60 grams of CO2 per passenger by 2030. That's 10% less than its current amount. I asked the company's director of sustainability, Thomas Fowler, which concrete measures that's going to involve. It's it's definitely an aggressive target. And, you know, I think the three main points that we see is obviously fleet renewal, which we already have one of the youngest fleets in Europe at just over eight years. Um, investments in new technologies, whether that be electric or hydrogen planes. And, and also then there's sustainable aviation fuels, which is not really available in mass in Europe at the moment and, and probably needs a bit of investment in within Europe that we can we can roll it out and use it in a sustainable manner. And then probably the last big one is probably air traffic management itself. So at the moment, Eurocontrol have a paper to say if airlines are able to get more direct routing, it could save fuel CO2 emissions by 10%. So, so there's a couple of areas that, that definitely we think are the, are the cornerstones of us re- reaching these targets. And in this overall strategy, how much of your emissions do you currently compensate for via offsetting schemes? And what role will such schemes play in future with regard um, to meeting? Yeah, like at the moment, we, we probably, when I say we offset, we pay for the EU ETS scheme. So we pay a tax on our emissions. We offset a small amount at the moment with the consumer contributions, but I think carbon offsetting will become a big play, Neil. Um, so we think that will offsetting will play some part, but the main focus should really be on carbon reduction. Your airline claims to be Europe's greenest airline, and this has drawn some criticism because despite Ryanair yeah. increasing efficiency per passenger, the overall emissions have increased, and Ryanair was ranked among Europe's top 10 emitters in 2018. Now, even if you manage to increase efficiency further per passenger in the years ahead, your fleet will continue emitting large amounts of CO2, right, and greenhouse gases, as long as they operated on fossil fuels. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a dilemma, right? What, what role uh, do alternative fuels, you touched upon it a bit just now, but can you perhaps yeah. give us a bit more concrete, what role do alternative fuels or synthetic fuels play in your future planning strategy or biofuels? Yeah, like... Yeah, they, they play a big role, Neil. Like, I think, again, I come back to it today. It's There's only about 1% of total fuel consumption in Europe is available in, in biofuels or sustainable aviation fuels. Um, just coming back on the point on the 2018 as well, like you have to remember, that's based on the EU ETS scheme, which is only accounts for intra-EU flights. So given that Ryanair is a short-haul intra-EU carrier, the majority of our of our emissions are covered by that scheme, whereas the long haul flights are out of scope. And only in the last couple of months, Eurocontrol released a paper which showed 6% of flights that depart Europe, which is which with distances greater than 4,000 kilometers account for 52% of the emissions. Yeah. So again, like, you know, we, we, can't, we can't discount that. If we um, also look, I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong now with these figures, but um, as I understood now from my research, as of December 2020, Ryanair has ordered over 200 new conventional planes from Boeing. Is that correct? Correct. How does this tie in with your decarbonisation strategy? So the way it ties in, the new, the new Boeing 8-200 aircraft has new engine technology, which is actually 16% more fuel efficient than our current fleet. So and we also are able to carry 4% more passengers. Now, Boeing's competitor, Airbus, plans to put a carbon-free yep. plane into service by 2035. 
what happens then? Will you re- will you be replacing your current fleet then? Would you place orders for those planes? Yeah, look, look, I think I think when you look at us again, as I said at the start of this, our average fleet age is about eight years, Neil, and we tend to like to keep it around that age. So by by twenty third, by possibly we'll we'll be looking at doing another aircraft order between then and twenty thirty five and replacing some of the fleet. But um, like look, I know, I know Boeing, our Airbus have an aggressive strategy, and and um, if it comes off, great. But I do think, as I said, aviation is a heavily regulated industry, and and it will have to pass all the tests and hmm. before we see something like that. So, At the end of the day, Thomas, what will all this mean for passengers? Will this mean, you know, that we all have to adapt and adjust and change? Will flying have to become more expensive? You know, is budget flying a thing of the past? Uh, I would I would like to think not, Neil. Um, I think, like, obviously, ultimately, people who go on leisure holidays, it's disposable income and and, you know, they are price sensitive. So we would hope our model of keeping the load factors high keeps the fare down for people, but also reduces the carbon footprint per seat um, and for people travelling. That's the take of Thomas Fowler, Director of Sustainability at the European budget airline Ryanair. Now, we also reached out to another airline across the Atlantic, United Airlines, a major American carrier operating domestically in the US as well as on international routes with plans to cut its emissions by 100%, going carbon neutral by 2050. And it's pledged to get there without using any voluntary carbon offsets. I asked Lauren Riley, the Managing Director of Global Environmental Affairs and Sustainability at United Airlines, how they're planning to pull that off. So really primarily, Neil, we've got three three opportunities, three pathways forward within aviation today. One is around replacing the fuel, the kerosene that we burn on our planes, mm-hmm. and taking um, instead sustainable aviation fuel and putting that on our jets. The second pathway that United is focused on is really around carbon capture and sequestration. This is a technology that literally captures the CO2 from the atmosphere and permanently stores it underground. And then the third pathway I'll just briefly mention is really around, you know, investing in this next generation of solutions. We don't know what is going to scale. We don't know what is going to be the preeminent solution necessarily. So we we have an obligation to really look at what are those promising technologies, whether it's hydrogen powered or electric powered aircraft or or the next. Mm-hmm. So because there's no silver bullet, we're we're really looking at all of these areas to address climate change. Okay, so both Ryanair and United seem to agree that there's no silver bullet. Both say decarbonising the industry will involve new technologies and replacing the fossil fuel kerosene with sustainable aviation fuels, also known as SAFs. Just quickly, SAFs are biofuels made from sustainable feedstocks such as waste products or agriculture residues. They can be mixed with traditional jet fuel and they're seen as a promising option because they can reduce up to 80% of carbon emissions over the life cycle of the fuel. But uh, there are, of course, some problems, as always, especially regarding scalability. According to uh, the International Air Transport Association, uh, the current production levels of SAFs are around 50 million litres per year, and experts believe that 7 billion litres would be necessary to make it competitive. And those 7 billion, that's only a rather meagre 2% of the fuel consumed in 2019. And according to Lauren, uh, there is another major obstacle to SAFs right now. Sustainable aviation fuel is 
far less than 1% of the total fuel we burn. And we're one of the market leaders in the world. Mm. So that's just simply not good enough. But secondly, it's, it's expensive. It's two to four times the cost of con- conventional jet fuel. And so in particular right now, given our financial circumstances, that's not very viable. The long-term solution really lies, in my opinion, with government. We need policy incentives that really help scale and commercialize sustainable aviation fuel. We need to close that price gap and we need to drive uh, supply up. And until that happens, we're going to continue to struggle with replacing conventional kerosene with sustainable alternatives. Now, some governments are looking at introducing policies on sustainable aviation fuels. Norway, for example, has already adopted a quota requiring 0.5% of biofuel to be mixed with jet fuel. The Dutch government is planning a target of 14% sustainable fuel by 2030 and to phase out kerosene altogether by 2050. At the same time, environmental groups, scientists and airlines, including Ryanair, have formed their own fueling flight initiative – And one of their main aims is to ensure the increased use of biofuels doesn't come at the cost of land that could otherwise be used for food crops. Ryanair's Thomas Fowler says it's important to be realistic in this context. But like, I'd like to think that maybe 5-10% by 2030 of SAS will be available. But look, obviously, we, we just need to see how that pans out over the next 24 months and see what then by talking to suppliers realistically what's going to be available and I think the other point, which is quite important, like, you know, we have to make sure the actual SAFs are sustainable. Mm. Um, You know, that doesn't come out that the SAFs are more harmful to the environment. So sustainable aviation fuels, that's one way to bring down emissions from flights. Critics say there's more the industry and policymakers could be doing, though. For example, there could be a levy on frequent flyers or governments could introduce a tax on kerosene, the jet fuel responsible for causing CO2 emissions. That's a measure that has been effectively blocked by lobby groups for decades. And I asked Lauren Riley at United Airlines how a tax exemption on kerosene dating back to the 1940s can be justified in times of global heating. Well, that's a good one. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, what I do know is that today the technology in aviation relies on kerosene. It is the only skilled option to enable air travel. I would love to see us, quite frankly, in a place where alternative low-carbon kerosene is scaled and replaces the kerosene that we use today. That is what we need to strive for, and that's really what we need to focus on incentivizing. So until we drive down that cost, it is unlikely that that's going to happen, as we've already talked about. So you wouldn't sort of be in favor of like a a carbon tax across the board? Because, I mean, that would obviously hit the aviation industry rather hard, right? I would be in favor of pricing carbon. Absolutely. Um, How that manifests in policy, I I, I don't have an opinion on that. But I do think that um, it should be uh, valued and things that are valued have a price. And I do think that we have an obligation across aviation to acknowledge that Mm. there is a price to emitting that that CO2. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell it from your voice, you know, you sound very passionate about this and it, it sounds very sincere. But I mean, there are critics out there. I mean, there will be people who will say, hmm, this sounds good, but this probably is just tantamount to, to greenwashing. How, how can you, what can you say to convince the skeptics out there that you really are going to turn things around with United? Well, I would say two things. One, we don't have a choice. I mean, I, 
I have young children. I care desperately about the planet that we leave behind. So does my CEO and the whole community across United. So this is what we are going to do. If you believe me or not, I almost am indifferent to that because we're going to take action regardless. My second comment would be, I would challenge those folks to get involved. So let their voices be heard, lean in and help us signal that we want these low carbon alternative fuels. We want advanced aircraft um, and, and airframe technology and engine technology. We need that because, I mean, people should be able to take pride getting on an airplane to go explore this beautiful planet we have. And they shouldn't have to to think twice about the emissions coming out of the tailpipe. That was Lauren Riley, the Managing Director of Global Environmental Affairs and Sustainability at United Airlines. So there you have it. Airlines like United and Ryanair are banking on a range of technologies that are still far from being developed so that people can keep boarding planes in the future without doing further damage to the planet. But not everybody believes technology will solve the problem. And we're going to hear from someone now who has a far more radical approach to tackling emissions. Um, she's called Magdalena Hoivisa, and she says we need to stop flying altogether. The climate crisis is simply too urgent. She's a campaigner with Stay Grounded. It's a global network that wants to dramatically reduce air traffic in favour of greener alternatives such as trains. And I got in touch with her to ask why she is so determined to ground planes, which after all only account for 2 to 3% of the world's carbon gas emissions. It's the most polluting form of transport. Um, for example, one return flight from here to New York can emit as many emissions as an average Indian person per year. Aviation emissions account for almost 6% of all human-caused global heating. That maybe doesn't sound that much, but it's actually a lot if we know that this climate impact is caused by a world minority, because more than 80% of the world has never stepped foot on an airplane. Mm. And mm. meanwhile, only 1% of the world population is responsible for half of all aviation emissions. There is no realistic option for decarbonizing aviation in the next decades. Technology is far from achieving this, so we have to act now, and that means that flights have to be reduced wherever possible. Yeah, that I mean that it, as things stand now. I mean, for instance, when I you know want to go to London, uh, the alternatives if I if I have to go for a short trip, you know, if, if it's like a weekend and I haven't got any more time, the only really viable thing to do is get on a plane because if the train itself, I lose a whole day just trying well, to get yes. from 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 where I live to London. And then, but uh, the question is, why do you need to go to this weekend trip? What what will you do in London? Yeah, that's that's a, needed. that is the individual question. But I'm, I mean, structurally, there should be an alternative, mm. shouldn't there, that I can get to London on a train without um, having to lose so much time and spend so much more money. Um, well, yes and no. I think um, yes, it would be great to have alternatives, but at the same time, I think we have to get used to the idea that. Everything that is extremely fast has its negative side effects. And we might, for a climate-safe world, become used to a bit of deceleration. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually um, it's not only good for the climate, but also good for ourselves. Okay, let's say that Magdalena Hoivisa from Stay Grounded and I 
kind of agree to differ a little bit on this one. And I'm certainly guilty of using budget flights when holidaying in Europe myself. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure to what degree I'd be prepared to give up on that, especially when it comes to family matters. But um, yeah, the question is, for me now, is there any way to do this more sustainably? And one idea out there that aims to limit the damage uh, is offsetting, where you pay an extra fee to compensate for the carbon emissions your flight produces. And often this money goes towards projects in the global south. It's something... Personally, I've never done myself, uh, simply because, well, for some reason, I never really trusted these schemes. But uh, yeah, one of the more established offsetting schemes in Germany is called Atmosphere, which is based in Berlin, and it's used by over one million people per year. And uh, yeah, so I got in touch with Atmosphere founder and CEO Dietrich Brockhagen. Um, he's a physicist, environmental economist, and also a former advisor to the German Environment Ministry. And I wanted to find out whether offsetting is indeed a good thing or whether it's just greenwashing. I've got the computer up here now. If I'm, I'm just yeah. typing in Atmosphere into Google, if you just bear with me a minute. Um, so that's atmosphere with an F for all you listeners out there if you want to follow up on this. Um, and then I come to your website and there's immediately a button um, to where I can donate and I can compensate for a flight. So let's say, I don't know, I want to fly from, say, Cologne. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's opening up here, Cologne, Bonn. And then I say I want to fly to um, to Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And then I can hit on calculate. And so now it's telling me, okay, my climate footprint for that flight would be 390 kilograms of CO2. Yes. And it estimates compensation of 10 euros. Um, let's just assume I click on the donation now. What happens with this money precisely? Where does it go? Um, yeah, it depends on your choosing. I mean, you have several options. If, if you leave it open, um, so then we, we are free to use it in, in whatever project uh, we, we see fit. Uh, we know that, um, let's say, we give it to our project in, in India, where we have our own production site, where we uh, manufacture uh, fuel-efficient cook stoves. Yeah, it, it costs about uh, 23 euros in production. So um, and we subsidize it by uh, around eight, eighty to ninety percent, so so that even a poorest family can afford it. Um, how much is it? You know, I mean, for instance, if I offset a flight, how much of that money goes into the project that you're supporting in the global south, and how much is for your own overheads? Yeah, our overheads last year were like four point five percent, so it's it's less than five percent. I, I found a quote uh, of yours online uh, in which you said. Um, the best flight is the flight that doesn't take off. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it, it sounds a bit like a contradiction given that um, you or, or atmosphere, it enables people to carry on flying with a, with a calmer conscience, doesn't it, in a way? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. It's, it's a contradiction um, uh, in a way. Uh, but, I mean, you, you can resolve it uh, by, by saying that offsetting is only the second best solution. So w once you have decided that... For whatever personal or impersonal reason um, uh, you have to, to, to board a plane, then uh, all of a sudden offsetting becomes the best available solution because then you are polluting anyway. Mm -hmm. This decision has been made. And so then uh, offsetting is, is the only real option on the table. Everything else 
uh, uh, doesn't help. Uh, the uh, 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement can't be uh, achieved with with offset at all. I mean, offset always means that emissions have to be saved elsewhere. It by no means leads to the target. Therefore, priority always must be on uh, avoiding emissions or cutting emissions at their source. Mm -hmm. It is is a bit tricky because, um, I mean, in the long run, you could have countries factoring this into their own calculations when it comes to determining their own footprint, right? And uh, particularly, you know, the countries where such projects are run, um, they may factor it in as well, as as well as the countries who are selling it, where the people are paying for it, right? So um, there could be a bit of doubling up in the long run, isn't there? I mean, do you, or do you see the risk that, you know, come 2050, countries um, might claim to have achieved climate neutrality when in fact they haven't or have only done so, done so through offsetting schemes? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a big danger. And it's called uh, double claiming or even double counting. And you're absolutely right. Uh, one... Uh, a ton of carbon saved could be claimed by two parties, the host country and the investing country. Hmm. And uh, um, it's, it's up on the agenda of the climate negotiations. It's not yet solved, but uh, we are fully aware of this and um, we are on the forefront and trying to get agreements. So uh, let's say uh, our biggest project is located in, in Nepal and we, we build there around 20,000 small biogas digesters annually. And the Nepal government, they have been willing to sign a contract with us saying that they are aware of this double counting, and, uh, but they value our investment in the biogas plant so much that they will uh, give us those emission savings. So they will deduct it from their own emission savings. I mean, our offsetting schemes, they do face criticism and sometimes the harshest critics uh, are found in environmental uh, quarters, uh, environmental activists quite often, who sort of compare it to like a, a modern-day indulgences trade. I mean, given how passionate you are about this and how much time and how much of your life you've invested into this, how does that make you feel when you sort of hear that criticism from environmentalists? I'm happy that they are there because, I mean, there are so much bad offsetting out there. You can't deny it. I mean, there, there have been so many bad projects detected where obviously money was, was never present or was wasted or a project that didn't work out, that didn't save any ton of carbon. And then obviously it's a betrayal. But even if it works out, if uh, offsets are used too light-handedly, then uh, also it, it, it comes easily close to, to, to greenwashing. So Dietrich Brockhagen, the CEO of Atmosphere, is the first to admit that there can be problems with offsetting. But even if these offsetting schemes do what they're supposed to and save emissions entering the atmosphere, Magdalena Heuwieser, the campaigner from Stay Grounded, finds the whole idea problematic. Because the idea is that we can continue doing something that pollutes while others need to reduce emissions. And these others are almost always located in the global south, are almost always communities that now should not access their forest anymore, that should use um, solar cookers instead of coal cookers. It's, it's so hypocrite to say, okay, I will continue flying. And these people in India who have a very small carbon footprint should now switch their cookers. You just mentioned the global south and uh, one of your points of criticism um, directed at, at the aviation industry, aside from it being ecologically harmful, is that it, it's reserved for a global elite um, with just 1% of the population responsible for 50% of emissions of commercial flights. And also that 
80% of the world's population has never set foot in an aeroplane, uh, which I find quite staggering. Um, but on the other hand, do you think, looking at the global south, um, I mean, they want to grow. They also want to develop their societies. Do you think that these 80% are on your side, you know, when it comes to cutting back this sector? Or would they rather get on that budget flight and travel and see the world like we've been doing for decades, you know, as their incomes rise? Well, I think that's a very good question. Um, I would say both exist. Um, and we we cannot be a hypocrite and tell the societies in the global south, oh, uh, please don't start flying if we ourselves um, don't credibly reduce our flights and, and change our consumption patterns. I think what's clear is that there is no human right for flights. So we have to ask ourselves, um, what are basic needs that that make us happy? What is needed for a good life for all? And I, I do know lots of um, people and groups in the Global South who are totally aware of that and who, who have another concept of a good life that doesn't imply the Western lifestyle, mm. because also they know that's, that this will need to end very soon. Time to summarize my main takeaways from this episode on aviation. Um, it might take time for the aviation sector to bounce back after the pandemic, but once it does, the number of people boarding planes is expected to keep growing no matter what. This raises the question about how the industry is going to be able to bring down its carbon emissions. Um, there's hope for new technology, such as aircraft powered by hydrogen, or the possibility of capturing CO2 from the atmosphere, storing it underground. But again, these potential solutions haven't been scaled yet. Both Ryanair and United Airlines seem to believe that sustainable aviation fuels, the so-called SAFs, will play a big role in the future. But at the moment, they're simply too expensive and there's just not enough supply. So it'll take some years and major investments before that changes. In the meantime, some experts say kerosene should be taxed to reflect the real contribution flying makes to emissions. Um, that's something that could raise ticket prices for passengers. Um, yeah, so that's my two cents. Please do let us know what you think. Drop us an email to onthegreenfence at dw.com. And while you're at it, please also check out our Global Ideas Facebook and Instagram account. And uh, yeah, that's about it for today. I think uh, that wraps it up. In the next episode uh, of our tourism series, we'll be taking a closer look at how mass tourism has changed an island paradise in Thailand and how it is changing yet again amid the pandemic. This is one, actually, uh, I think Leonardo DiCaprio should really listen into. So if you have his contact details, any chance, do uh, let him know. Many thanks uh, to my colleague and producer Natalie Muller and our sound engineer Jürgen Kuhn. I'm Neil King, signing off for now. Take care and take it easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the On the Green Fence podcast. We'd like to thank Neil King and Natalie Muller of On the Green Fence and Deutsche Welle for letting us share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Katherine Palmer. 
alongside Lori Anding, Meno Duran, and Mary Pafford. Special thanks to Lori Anding for introducing the episode today. To listen to other shows in the network, like Carbon Sessions, where everyday people have conversations about carbon, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts. Here you will find episodes ranging from regenerative agriculture to consumer fashion to business to education. Learn more at thecarbonalmanac.org.